Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast with your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome, everyone, to episode number two of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. I'm your host, Ron Jacobus, and joining me today is Aaron Arp, an accomplished security practitioner. Aaron has accumulated more than 20 years of diverse experience in the protective security field. His background includes active duty military, high net worth client executive protection, and corporate security management. He started his professional career in the United States Army, serving in Washington, D.C., and in Europe. After leaving the military, Aaron began working as an executive protection specialist for a high net worth family in Austin, Texas. After working in Austin for over 10 years, Aaron then accepted a position with a company based in Honolulu, Hawaii, where he served as the manager of protective services, directly responsible for the company's security-related special projects. Today, Aaron wears a number of hats at Progressive Force Concepts in Las Vegas, Nevada. He is a member of the team's training cadre, for PFC's nationally recognized and university-accredited Protective Security Operations Certification. In addition, Aaron is also a senior manager for Special Operations at PFC Safeguards, the executive protection wing of the company. In this role, Aaron manages all of PFC's international operations, along with surveillance, covert operations, technical security, and consulting, while managing the PFC Executive Security Operations Concierge, or ESOC. Now, as a sidebar to this introduction, PFC is home to one of my favorite outdoor range training facilities, the Pioneer Annex Range Complex, or simply known to those of us who have trained there as the park. So Aaron, with all that said, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast, and I thank you for taking the time to share your insights with our audience today. All right, good morning. That was was one hell of an introduction. Thank you very much. Oh, well, hey man, your background gave me plenty of material to work with there. And as we get started today, Aaron, I'd like to point out that, like many in the executive protection field, you're a military veteran. However, your transition from the military to private sector executive protection almost didn't actually happen. Could you share with our audience your origin story and how your transition from the military into the executive protection bubble almost never actually occurred? Yep, the the military uh, went in directly after high school, kind of uh, come from a long line of uh, military folks. So very easy decision for me to make after high school, went into, uh, went into the military police. Uh, my first duty station was up in a small base called Fort McNair up in Washington, D.C. A pretty interesting place, very ceremonial. So we would kind of float between doing base security and community law enforcement there on Fort McNair over to ceremonial duties at Arlington National Cemetery. Did that for about two years, then pcs over to Germany. I uh, was with the 18th MP Brigade, uh, 630th MP Company. That was uh, that was more community law enforcement. Uh, uh, we also supported 1st Armor Division. So uh, the last part of 95, beginning of 96, obviously this was a long time ago, when 1st Armor Division deployed to Bosnia uh, with a NATO peacekeeping mission to uh, implement the Dayton Peace Accord, deployed with them, and ended up in, uh, in Bosnia for my last six months of my five years on active duty. Bounced back, got out, came back to the States, uh, had every intention of becoming a Texas state trooper. And uh, before that could happen, I met Fred Burton, 
who was uh, just putting together a protective team for a high net worth family there in Austin, my hometown. And uh, Fred recruited me over to executive protection, where I've been for the last 20 plus years. So that's kind of the Reader's Digest version. Man, Aaron, that is just such a great story because here you are about to embark on a career in law enforcement, but as life would have it, you were set down a different path. And as you know, it's quite common for those of us who work in the world of protective services to come from one of two buckets, either law enforcement or military. So with that in mind, could you share a little bit more about just how you fell into the industry of executive protection with Fred Burton, of all people, who spent a career of his own in federal law enforcement before making the transition to executive protection and security management? Yeah, so um, so Fred, when I met Fred, he was putting together uh, the team there in Austin, and it was a, it was a new effort. And uh, Fred, you know, I can't tell you what Fred was thinking, but apparently he saw something in me that he thought could contribute to that effort. And then uh, Fred had asked me to go talk to the to the recruiter for this company, and uh, then it became after going and talking to the recruiter for this company, it became very simple math. Uh, they showed me what a probationary Texas State Trooper makes, and then they showed me what they were going to pay me. So uh, it was a really easy decision after that. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how all that played out. You know, that's very interesting, Aaron, how most people think of executive protection as this kind of second career to pick up once you've timed out of federal service or you've pulled your retirement ticket from municipal law enforcement. But really, that's not always the case, because more often than not, if you're a competent individual and excel in this industry, you're really going to make hand over fist what you would in the field of law enforcement or government service. And specifically, jumping back to your story, I love how Fred sent you over to talk to the company recruiter. And when presented with all the information, you just kind of grab life by the horns. Yeah. And it's, it's been a, you know, I got to be honest, it's been a very good career for me. I mean, obviously, you know, 20 plus years in, I, I, I've got a lot of retrospect that I can look back. But, um, you know, aside from it being lucrative, which it, which it has been, but the other part is just that, you know, I've gotten to travel all over the world. I've gotten to go a lot of places, see a lot of things. Uh, you know, obviously, when you're doing that, it's a very high stress situation because you're directly responsible for somebody else's safety and security. But at the same time, it's a it's a tremendous opportunity as well. So even as much traveling as I did in the military, really didn't see the world until I got into executive protection. So it's a it's a great industry as long as uh, you have the aptitude for the work. You know that that's a big thing because there's a lot of people that that feel they can do this kind of work. Um, but unfortunately, it's not really what a lot of people think it is once you get into the actual the actual work, especially when we're dealing with executive protection versus something like, I don't know, like celebrity protection. The executive world, obviously, is just very, very different. And there's some some people that, you know, they crush things and other parts and they're just for whatever reason aren't flexible enough or can't adapt to this environment and they don't do so well. And then there's other folks that that come from a completely non-linear background. So, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of folks get into this work coming from law enforcement or coming from the military. And there is that kind of natural progression or folks that are that have that personality and do well in those environments can kind of gravitate to this environment. Uh, but then there's people that just come from none of that. And they come in and they just have a tremendous aptitude for the work and attention to detail and all the things that this takes. And they, they have really great careers that come from backgrounds that just you wouldn't necessarily think about. So uh, yeah, it's not always a clear path, but uh, if you if you do have the aptitude and you enjoy the work, it can be a tremendously rewarding career, not just financially, but just uh, also 
personally and professionally, it can be a rewarding career. You know, Aaron, that's extremely well said. And when we think about demographics in terms of the type of people who kind of select into the executive protection industry, it's also interesting to think about those who tend to select themselves out before really understanding just how this industry operates and that there's probably a place for them just like everybody else. Some of these individuals do eventually go into the industry just to find out that they're a perfect fit, even though they didn't have or possess the background that in their own head potentially disqualified them in this line of work. I think of some of the female protectors who make the jump into this historically male-dominated industry only to find that they truly excel in areas that their male counterparts really struggle with. This makes me think back to a covert protection training I took with y'all, and on day one, the instructor quickly pointed out we didn't have any females in the class, to which we were told that by the end of the course, we were really going to understand how much easier the field exercises could have been if we were split 50-50. So to any of the females listening today who are on the fence about entering into this profession, there's indeed a place in this industry for you, and that on plenty of occasions, principals actually specifically request female operatives on some pretty gnarly gigs. It's not always the fighting age male or the Navy SEAL built individual who excels in this field. And teams with more diversity can really play to the environment in which they're operating it. Yeah, and females in this industry, they're, they're almost, a, almost a commodity because there's so few females in the industry uh, compared to the males uh, that when you have a female in the industry that's very competent uh, and, and just does really well at this work, they're, they're in such demand that they can almost go wherever they want to go. And especially as a lot of teams, especially here on the West Coast, have gravitated towards the, the covert model of protection. Females, as you know, anytime you're looking for somebody doing something bad, we all have the bias of looking for that fighting age male. So if you are a fighting age male and you're in a place where you're not supposed to be or you're not comfortable or whatever the case is, people are going to notice you a lot quicker, where if you are a female in those same environments, you can move around a lot more freely and you can move around without anybody necessarily associating you there to do work. So especially in those covert roles, there is a tremendous need in the industry for, uh, for competent females. So uh, yeah, a lot of opportunity there. Aaron, to your point, I'm reminded of a security conference I attended back some years ago now in Austin, Texas. And I think we're going to have plenty of nexuses between Austin on this podcast just because it's your hometown, we've both worked in the city, and it's got an ever-growing tech and security industry. But anyway, back to this conference, there was a female presenter and she had a number of different red team tools and disguises on this table. What absolutely blew me away was when she grabbed a fake baby bump and explained to us that her favorite cover to use was that of a pregnant female. She then went on to explain a whole host of advantages she had while working red team penetration tests against companies who would hire her to gain access into their restricted areas. So in circling back to the need of female protectors, it's like you said, a commodity of sorts to have a female on your detail in this industry. Yeah, and absolutely. You know, like I said, there's actually such a high demand for them right now that uh, for, like I said, females, especially in, in covert roles, but also in, you know, more, more traditional overprotective roles, that uh, the career opportunities that are in this industry right now are, are almost limitless. I couldn't agree with you more, Aaron, and I sincerely hope that any of the females listening to this episode really take advantage of the opportunities that are out there to either start or further their careers in this industry. Now, Aaron, I'd like to pivot back a little bit to your executive protection journey as it began in Texas. You were hired on a protection detail team that traveled with your principal both in a domestic and international capacity. How important was it to be competent in the long list of proficiencies that encompass the broad scope of protective security? 
And what was the biggest difference while on assignment overseas that you didn't face while operating domestically? You know, that's a that's an interesting question. And uh, when I got started in this industry, unfortunately, I did not have the benefit of any real formal training. Uh, so here at PFC, we offer a week-long class called PSOC, uh, kind of really good foundation for getting into this industry. Uh, when I got started, I didn't have that benefit. So I kind of kind of got thrown into things and, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. Every time I came back and was asking my management at the time, how am I doing? They were just like, ah, you're doing great, kid. Just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, but I can honestly say that the uh, the first, really the first three years of my EP career, um, I made just about every mistake short of getting a principal killed or, or kidnapped uh, that I could possibly make. And it was all just, you know, dumb rookie mistakes. But uh, unfortunately, I just didn't have that formalized training. So a lot of what I had to learn, just trial and error and messing it up and, and you know, uh, just really had to learn the hard way. But after that, I think that first three years was the roughest. After that, everything kind of, you know, I got a little bit better handle on it. I got a little experience, uh, a little bit of, you know, decent judgment within the industry. And then so when we started moving around internationally, there was still a lot to learn. Um, but yeah, there was just um, a big learning curve there for sure. You know, Aaron, it's very interesting that you bring up that learning curve. And that kind of trial by fire atmosphere during which you started out your career. And it kind of reminds me of one of Fred Burton's books. And it's really funny to me that Fred's wiggled his way into the discussion on both of our podcast episodes. I think it just might be a sign that we ought to have him on at some point to get a fair shot at telling some of his own stories. But again, his book Ghost, where he really highlighted his own experiences, being thrown in the deep end of the pool on several occasions, and in some cases, having to make a pool where one didn't even exist. And while there are great lessons that can be learned by this method, it's important to remember that in the executive protection world, you're always responsible for someone else's safety. And so to avoid this scenario, companies like PFC have created what I think is a wonderful training pipeline to provide protectors with the ability to really hone their hard and soft skills before they embark on their journey into protective security operations. And so on that note, could you share a little bit of what PFC offers to the protectors for those who may be looking for some training opportunities? Yeah, for sure. So uh, probably the, the crown jewel, we have a lot of different protective security operations courses, but our PSOC is probably our central course. And it's a, it's a five-day class. And what we've really tried to do, because a lot of the folks that are coming to us for training, kind of like what you mentioned at the beginning of the, the episode here, they're coming out of the military, they're coming out of law enforcement. So what we really try to do is design a class that's really focused on the corporate environment and incorporate executive protection. And the reason is because because you have these folks coming out of different backgrounds, learning that corporate environment, it's different to navigate, right? So folks coming out of the military where they were riding around in little birds and kicking in doors and all that stuff, uh, that stuff is now pretty much gone we're, if we're talking about executive protection and really focusing on what we refer to as your soft skills, right? So these are the things, your soft skills are what are going to get you through your, your corporate day. Um, we have to have those hard skills. Those are always have to be ready to go, um, but really, really thriving and, and uh, you know, changing your mindset a bit to be successful in a corporate environment. That's really what the course is about and understanding the executive protection role within that environment. So the first three days are, are pretty academic heavy. 
a lot of classroom. On the fourth day, we do uh, a field training exercise where we actually we bring in role players, uh, we rent vehicles, and the students are divided down into teams, and they actually go and work a detail. If we're doing the class here in Vegas, we go out in Vegas, and we spend the day actually running a detail. We go to real restaurants, we go to live venues, and the folks on the team have to treat that as if it's a it's an actual protectee. The folks that we bring in to play the principals, uh, they are people within the community. These are these are executive protection professionals uh, because there's there's no instructors in the vehicles with you, right? So the people, the, the role players, the principals, they know right from wrong, and they can evaluate the service that they're that they're being provided with. And that's the main thing for the FTX. We don't have instructors waiting in the bushes with paint guns or anything like that, right? The whole idea of the the field training exercise on day four is to provide a professional security service for that day, right? And then day five is all about, you know, that's about hard skills. That's uh, all out at the range. And uh, that's usually a pretty good day. Uh, even Even if you've done a lot of shooting coming out of Law enforcement, the military, uh, Ron. I think you can attest to this. Day five out at the range. That's uh, it's different shooting when you're protecting a third person versus just protecting yourself. And I think uh, we spend a lot of the day focusing on that mindset and the the logistics of moving around a human being that you're protecting with a live firearm. So, uh, so I think the class is great. Obviously, I'm a little bit. Uh, a little bit biased, but uh, I think it's a really good opportunity. And the first time that I sat through PSARC as a student, I had been doing this work all over the world for 15 years. And that whole week that I was sitting through the class, all I was doing was reflecting back to those first three years, just thinking, oh man, this would have been so much easier if I would have had something like this uh, just as as a foundation versus how I ended up doing it. But uh, but yeah, and then we have another one, uh, a covert operation and uh, protective surveillance course. Again, that was a lot more fun, three-day class, but it's getting com- people comfortable with the mindset of operating in a covert role. And it's it's different, right? So you can go into some place when you're when you're not working and you can be completely comfortable there because you're you know you're there for legitimate business and then you go in that same venue the very next day working doing surveillance or doing something in a covert role and suddenly you're very uncomfortable and people can see that you're uncomfortable and now you're drawing attention to yourself maybe not necessarily drawing attention to yourself in whatever you're doing but people are noticing you whereas the day before they weren't and the only thing that's different is the mindset that you went into that that venue with. So teaching people how to really understand that mindset and and be comfortable in their environments when they're operating in a covert role. That's a very good point. And in both the law enforcement and protective security worlds, we talk a lot about telegraphing. Sure. Which simply put, amounts to those little signals we send out into the world for other people to pick up on. And I can attest firsthand that this information is covered in your course curriculum because I've gone through your PSOC course I've completed your covert operations and surveillance training, and I went through your first rendition of an incredibly developed residential security course, where during the final FTX, I found myself directing an actual pregnant role player into a mocked-up safe haven before we neutralized the attacker. And when my co-founder Richard and I were discussing which training provider to attend so we could better hone our skills before embarking on the creation of our own security company, we decided on PFC because of the style of protection y'all teach and the training philosophies the company stands by. Richard has a deep background in protection security operations, developed in large part from his time as a member of the Texas governor's protective detail, 
And one of the biggest takeaways we had from attending these courses together was not just the incredible level of training, but also the realistic style of protection taught by the instructor cadre. For anyone who's seen the bodyguard persona on TV or what Hollywood has put into the pop culture lexicon is really not the reality. And unless you're on a secret service detail protecting the president, it seems to be a different reality for those in a more corporate environment where you just don't have anywhere near the same level of resources. And that one person who might be dedicated to a single job on a more expansive detail is in reality doing three, four, or even five jobs all at one time. So in short, the training experience was second to none at PFC. And I guess that's my short plug for you guys today. I appreciate it. (laughs) Hey, look, man, I'm just calling it how it is. But on that note, PFC does more than offer training to protect your security professionals. The company also has an operational component known as PFC Safeguards, where you offer an array of protective security services to a wide base of clientele. And on that note, you have been extremely instrumental in the development of your company's ESOC, an executive security operations concierge. Now, while our listeners may hear that term and think, well, that sounds an awful lot like a GSOC, a global security operations center, they're partially correct. However, your team has developed something that's quite unique, focused, and tailored for the executive protection side of house. So if you wouldn't mind, could you explain for our listening audience how your team developed this program, what was the need that prompted its design, and how it has actually operated since going live? Yeah, so uh, that's exactly it. We, uh, We looked at this about three years ago. And we saw not necessarily a need in the market because there's plenty of folks out there that are offering similar services. What was in the market, there was something of a lack of, of laser focus on the client, especially when you're looking at somebody like that's offering these services to multiple, multiple clients. So one of the things that Steve, one of the reasons Steve Krista could ask me to uh, to lead this project is because I have been uh, I have been a consumer of this product my entire career. Right as I'm uh, was in my executive protection role and, and traveling around the world with my clients, we were constantly consuming this information, and so uh, it's kind of one of those things where I'm not an analyst. You know, that's that's not my background, but. As somebody who's used this information on the ground, Steve felt that I would have a lot to contribute into making our product better. So one of the things that I noticed in my career prior to ESOC was we would sign up for these intelligence briefs based on our travel, and they kind of became what I like to call the daily delete, um, because I would start getting these daily updates And I would read through the first one. And because the folks that were providing these briefings, they're mass producing them, right? So if they have 15 clients that are in Mexico City, all 15 of those clients are going to receive the exact same initial briefing. And then they're going to receive the exact same daily updates, even if those have nothing to do with where they're going to be or what they're going to be doing. So what we decided to do is just do something different uh, in that it's really, really focused in on what our client is doing. So instead of giving a pre-travel risk assessment based on just the city itself, what we started doing was going into the specific areas that the clients are going to visit. So we start looking at the areas around the hotel. We start looking at the areas around the venue. We start looking at the routes in between every place that we know that they're going to go, the FBO, uh, all these things, and, and then providing a report that's really focused in on your trip. So even if we had three or four clients in Mexico City, 
they're going to receive similar briefings, but they would actually receive something that is specific to their itinerary and, and the activities that they communicated with us that they're going to be you know, partaking in. So that's where the concierge part comes in, right? So we really just tried to dial it into the clients. And so far, uh, we've been pretty successful with that. We've had a lot of client feedback, a lot of positive feedback. We've even had uh, We've even had uh, a couple of incidents where the executive protection team was going overseas to an event, a scheduled event that their client had intended to attend. And some of these events weren't, weren't exactly what they seemed to be on the surface. And so we were able to dig into the events, find out historical information on them, and provide the executive protection teams with a much clearer understanding of the activities that their clients were going to be engaged in while they were there. So again, just doing everything we can to prepare the executive protection teams for the exact environment that they're going to be before they even leave home. So that's kind of where we started it all off. You know, obviously we've, we've learned a lot over the last three years and we've grown considerably. Um, but that was really the idea is just providing that really focused customer support for the travel piece, right? We, we also do, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it. We also uh, do POI management and protective intelligence, but uh, it all kind of started the genesis of it was really providing that travel support piece and it's grown out of that. Man, that's absolutely fascinating, Aaron. And it makes me think of that adage, the only fight you'll ever end up winning is the one you never get into. Exactly. And it seems to be that an ESOC really enhances a team's ability to avoid hazardous situations that they would otherwise find themselves having to navigate by surprise while they're with their principal. And on that note, Aaron, I'd like to take a brief pause to listen to a message from today's sponsor. Sounds good. Wonderful, man. Well, folks, we'll be back with more in just a moment with our guest, Aaron Ark. This episode is sponsored by Kelly Sayer, founder of the Diamond Arrow Group and author of the book Sharp Women. In her book, Kelly breaks down ways for women to deal with everyday situations using their best self-defense weapon, their intuition. This book is a great gift for the protective security professional's spouse who often find themselves on their own while their significant other is away on assignment. Sharp Women can be found for purchase on Amazon. And for more information about Kelly's consulting or public speaking services, please visit the Diamond Era Group website. Welcome back to the Global Security Protection Group podcast. We're continuing our discussion with our guest, Aaron Arp. Now, Aaron, we were just talking about the capabilities of your ESOC program, and I'd like to discuss a little bit more about the specifics of your ESOC and how it benefits your clients or executive protection teams as they travel around the globe. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier in, in the podcast was the difference between a GSOC and, and what we're doing. And we, we work with a lot of companies. We have a lot of clients where they, the companies uh, have GSOCs, these global security operations centers, right? These very, very large scale operations that are looking at very high level, wide lens type of thing, right? So one of the things that we've seen with these global security operations centers is that because a lot of the times the, the analysts working there, they are, their primary task is looking at, at things that impact the entire company, not not just the C-suite, right? So they're looking at things like global supply chain and, and all of these very high-level things that are supporting the company's efforts, right? So one of the things that we've seen that we're a little bit of trouble, not always, but sometimes where it's a little bit difficult to incorporate 
executive protection support within this much larger organization or much larger global effort is that you have analysts that are that are kind of already task saturated right they already have a primary function and that primary duty is is these large scale uh, operations for the company so now adding in hey we'd we'd also like you to pay attention to what's going on surrounding our executives a lot of times they just one they they're already like i said they're already tasked out with these other things so this is just a extra duty and as you know a lot of times especially if you have active executives that are doing a lot of traveling or they're high profile executives and there there's a lot of social media or any kind of media surrounding them that's a full time job and so just trying to incorporate this into somebody else's already busy day isn't always the best way to deal with it. So what we found here is is just having dedicated analysts that are security analysts and that's what they do pretty much 24/7 is they support our clients whether that's through travel, whether that's through POI management, whatever whatever the service vertical is, this is all we do. So uh, we find that that that's really the best approach if you want to do it efficiently and effectively. Uh, having somebody do it as a as a side gig, uh, you're going to get mixed results with that. At least that's our experience. So yeah, that that's the other big difference is that we are doing other things other than executive support. So as we have EP teams moving around, you know, especially going back to the travel the travel support piece, having it's not quite real-time intel, but pretty close to real-time intel coming out of an, any given area. So, for example, we had uh, we had some folks that were, it was their departure day. They're leaving the hotel. They're going to the FBO. Uh, should be wheels up. We saw that there was a peaceful protest uh, that popped up on what we assumed would be the most first choice for a route from the hotel to the FBO. Now, one of the things we did, so we were able to get that information out to them and just let them know that the roads are going to be messed up. And as you know, a lot of times we're talking about executive protection. It's not always about protecting life and limb. Most of it's about inconvenience mitigation, right? We want to keep them on task, the executives. We want to keep them on task, on time. That's probably 90% of our function, right? The security and all that other stuff that comes with that, but really making sure that that our clients don't run into situations that could delay them uh, or whatever the case may be unnecessarily or that could be avoided. So this is one of those times we were able to get that information to the EP team. Um, they were able to pick an alternate route and adjust their departure time just a little bit and made sure that the executive got to the FBO and got out of there on time without any inconvenience or any unnecessary inconvenience. So. That was another piece where just travel support, you know, one of the things we were able to to provide is we get into POI management, especially that service vertical. That that's uh there's a lot that goes on with that, but providing a POI intelligence for executive protection teams, whether they're just doing their daily stuff at home or whether they're out and about, um, that's a that's a huge part of what we do and and that that goes hand in hand with protective intelligence, uh, which is again just just making sure that somebody's listening um, to the folks that are out there. Um, POI, for, for those that aren't familiar with that term, a person of interest, these are somebody we kind of categorize as someone who's taken an unhealthy interest in uh, in an executive or really anybody 
And then some of the efforts that we do to kind of keep tabs on these folks, just kind of see what they're going. A lot of it is not necessarily uh, spying on them per se, but a lot of it is just trying to establish a baseline behavior, uh, whether that's through social media, uh, whether that's through other public records. Uh, there's a lot of different tools we leverage against this. But one of the things we want to do if we have a known POI is we want to try and just establish that baseline. So one of the things we want to do that is, is then if we start seeing things that where this POI is coming way off baseline, um, these could be indications that their behavior is changing and uh, they're, they may be entering some you know, mental state where now they're willing to take a much larger risk to accomplish something or they're holding you know, somebody we're protecting as responsible for all these bad things that are happening to them. So again, just trying to establish that baseline. So when we talk about POI management, that's probably a pretty big piece of it. Uh, the other part of that is what we call protective intelligence. So this is, uh, again, a little bit more, a little bit more intricate in that a lot of times these folks that are, you know, emotionally disturbed or upset or whatever the case may be, how, however they popped up on our radar, um, a lot of times these folks are prolific social media users. And so they are just constantly throwing information out into the world that's useful to us. Some of it's just what we call white noise, just stuff that's happening in the background doesn't really concern us. Uh, we have different software that we leverage against that to try and you know, cut out as much of the white noise as we can. But at the same time, we do want to be listening to see what these folks are saying. So, uh, you know, the example that I like to use a lot is if you were protecting your executive and you guys were going to an event here in Las Vegas and this event is publicized, right? These are some of the most really high risk things we do in the executive protection world is that we attend an event where somebody where, where the nature of that event and the times and the dates and the fact that we're going to be there are published ahead of time because now somebody has knows exactly when and where we're going to be somewhere right so that's that's always a huge red flag but imagine you're protecting your executive and you're coming to an event here in las vegas and you have a known poi this person's known to us we we're, we're aware of them and they're supposed to be in their mom's basement in colorado well Three weeks before our event, they start tweeting or whatever social media platform they use. Just heard about the event in Las Vegas. I'm thinking about going, right? And they're pushing this information out. Next two weeks out, just bought my ticket to Las Vegas. Really looking forward to seeing executive so-and-so there. We're going to get this thing sorted out right there, right? The day before the event goes live. They're taking selfies in front of the Welcome to Las Vegas sign, right? So this is kind of the essence of protective intelligence in that if nobody's listening to that, who are you doing everything you can to protect your client? Because if you were the executive protection team for that client, that executive coming here to Vegas, and you have a known POI that's, as you put it, telegraphing their intentions, and you're not listening to that information you have no idea this person's going to show up, even though they're telling you they're going to show up. So again, that's really where the protective intelligence piece comes in, where we do that listening. And an interesting thing that came up, uh, I was recently at the uh, protective intelligence conference there in Austin, 
with uh, OnTick, and they brought up a really interesting statistic. And, and looking back through everything I've experienced over the last three years, I didn't see a, a flaw in the statistic in that almost almost 100% of threats now generate in the cyberspace, whether that's uh, somebody saying something on social media, whether that's something coming in on an email or whatever the case is, not 100%, but a vast majority of the threats now, the first indication of those threats, the first time they're voiced is in the cyber realm. So again, not having the ability to listen into that is really doing whatever you're protecting, whether it's a venue, whether it's a an asset, whether it's a person, you're not listening for that. Uh, you're making, you're missing a huge piece of the picture. Now, Aaron, that's an interesting point. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of it has to do with getting your team's greater visibility on the potential threats that are out there. Additionally, the first thing that's going to be asked following a major incident is what your team did ahead of time to best mitigate it from ever happening in the first place. And while sometimes hindsight can be 2020, not having some sort of intelligence gathering capability just isn't going to cut it in today's day and age. Now, your ESOC really brings this capability to bear when it comes to assisting teams to identify potential threats before they fully materialize. And while it's not about being the minority report, it is about letting your team get a grasp at what's out there to better widen their lens and increase their visibility to what we call the threat landscape. My mind jumps back to a training I took with y'all where we included this capability into one of our exercises, and it kind of felt as though we had a wizard in the room. It really highlighted just how much a team can benefit from this information, and how it allows the protectors in the field to be more present because of the information they have received ahead of time to prepare them. Honestly, if you're operating without this capability, in the digitally connected world that we live in today, your team is going to miss a lot of things, and not because they were incredibly hidden, but instead because you weren't looking where they could be found. Yeah, and that's that's it. And even if you go back to uh, the concentric ring model of security, right? Kind of that classic, that three ring model of, of security. Um, each ring, the, the, the real, when you break it down, the purpose of each ring is to try and identify and deal with the threat as physically far away from your client as possible, right? So when you add in protective intelligence, and, and I'm, I'm plagiarizing somebody here, and I really wish I could give them credit because uh, I read this uh, in an article a couple of years ago, but it just really resonated with me. So uh, I wish I could give the person credit for this. But uh, but really, by using protective intelligence, you're creating a fourth ring, and that that fourth ring goes out all over the planet. And so being able to, one, identify somebody that maybe didn't pop up on your radar through you know other means but to, to identify somebody as somebody you need to be concerned about, uh, or two, again, keep track of, uh, keep track of somebody that, that we do know about. So in one instance, uh, we were supporting a, a surveillance team, uh, here in ESOC and the person that was being targeted by the surveillance team was, uh, one of their favorite things to do was they would go to the local coffee house there, pop open their laptop, and then they would just start this stream of consciousness on Facebook. And what I mean by that is they would just start just these very long rambling uh, posts on Facebook 
and then they would post the fate they would post it but then they would start replying to their own posts so just kind of a one person rambling conversation uh but within that conversation were some real real uh real gems as far as operational intelligence so some of the things that they would drop in there is like oh later today i was thinking about doing this or tomorrow i was thinking about going to the beach so by gathering all this information we were able to get this to the surveillance team real time so that mainly keeping the surveillance team ahead of the target by a couple of steps because the target was just giving us all this information for free. So uh, again, having the ability to listen into that uh, is also, we can support not just, uh, not just protective intelligence, but actually just supporting live operations and having a, an executive protection team that has this capability where, where guys and girls in the field don't necessarily have to get bogged down doing, doing these tasks, which sometimes are, are pretty labor intensive. They just kick it over to us. Then we take it and we run with it from there. And then we get the actionable intelligence back to them as quickly as we can. And that just helps them kind of everything runs a lot smoother on the ground, or at least that's the idea. Man, that's just really fascinating. And while the person of interest component is just so intricately important, it rolls into a larger risk assessment that is then provided to the client or the representatives. So with this in mind, could you take a step backwards and explain just how the POI management is plugged into a larger apparatus? Well, uh, we offer, you know, a lot of different services, the, the POI management, the protective intelligence and the travel monitoring. Those are, are definitely our three biggest service verticals. Um, but we offer site surveys is probably one that we do quite a few of, whether it's a new security program that's starting out, um, obviously, and they're taking over an executive residence or whatever the case may be having that site survey done so you kind of understand one what's there what's existing right now um you know we'll go out and assess what we see as vulnerabilities or risks and then we'll include you know what we think are, are realistic solutions to those or, or something that you can leverage against those risks obviously with with executive residences there's uh it's it's something of an art form because we have to balance security features with comfort and convenience so um, a lot of times people that spend millions of dollars on their houses don't want them to look like prisons for some reason. So uh, that's a, that's a bit of an art form, but, but that's something we do a lot of. One of the other things that we do a lot of too, uh, these are, these are pretty big reports, but we do uh, TVRAs, threat vulnerability and risk assessments. So this is where we will go in and look at a client and we will basically look over their entire life with a microscope. Um, so we'll look at things like the site, their, their residences, uh, we will go and do, uh, take a look at the corporate environment. We will look at where they like to travel. We'll look at, you know, activities that they like to partake in. And then this turns out, we'll also look at things like their online presence. I mean, if you have high profile people that kind of know there's a lot of information out there about them. Um, they're kind of prepared for that, but a lot of times you have executives that are, they're well known within their environment and their community, uh, but don't really consider themselves high profile folks. Uh, but when we get in there and start digging up information that we can find what we call open source information, a lot of times they're shocked at what we can find. 
So, but anything we can find is a potential vulnerability, right? So all of these, all of this goes into the report and basically what it is, is just a very high level document on what we see, what's going on, what's there today, what we consider vulnerability, risk, and then, you know, what we feel would be a reasonable mitigation to some of those risks. So uh, that's one of the reports that we do here. And then kind of going into what I just talked about, just isolating certain parts out of that report. So for example, the, um, uh, the open source information, we can do a deep dive on somebody and just see what information is out there about them. And, and we found some pretty scary stuff uh, when we go look for this. So for example, one of our clients had purchased a, uh, you know, they purchased a very, very nice residence, but it was a house that was already existing when they bought it. And uh, as we were going through looking for our information, we were able to find on a, on a very common real estate website, there was actually a video tour of their entire residence that was online. And it was just sitting out there for anybody to, uh, to go look at and get a, get a virtual tour of their, their residence. Um, so going through and identifying all of that, and then we also offer open source information removal services. So this is uh, where we go in and we find all that information, and then we start to try and remove it. Again, a lot of it, there's some of it that can't be removed just because of the nature of the information. Uh, but there's some of it, a lot of it we can remove. Probably the worst part about that is it's not a one and done. So uh, unfortunately, the data aggregators, they're constantly repopulating that information on certain websites. So uh, we have certain resources that we use here that we just go out and kind of like sweeping a floor. You know, about the time you get done sweeping the floor, it's kind of dirty again, and it needs to be swept again. So we just start removing that information, what we can remove, and then just go back and re-verifying. And when it pops up again, we remove it again. And so that's one of the ones that's... Uh, a lot of people utilize us for uh, due diligence backgrounds, um, folks getting whether they have a potential POI uh, or if it's just somebody they're thinking about getting in business with. Uh, we'll go and do uh, what we call a due diligence report on that person and just make sure, you know, in the case of a POI, we're looking for things like a history of violence or anything like that. Uh, you know, but basically, again, this is the, that due diligence report is the first step in establishing that baseline for POI. Uh, if it's in the case of like, you know, just a regular person, somebody just wants to get checked out before they have an official business relationship with them, make sure that there's nothing really obvious in that person's background that could come back to haunt them and potentially damage their brand. Uh, that's something we do quite a bit of. And then, uh, you know, other more highly customized things. So we've had, um, We've had clients that were thinking about purchasing properties and they've asked us to look into their neighbors and just find out who their neighbors are and find out a little bit about them so that they have a clear picture of the folks that are going to be around them when uh, when they purchase the, the, the property. So, yeah, it's all kinds of stuff. Man, as a red team guy, I just had to wipe the drool from my mouth there a moment ago as you shared that story about the online open house. And really, like is said, most of these attacks originate in some form or fashion in cyberspace. So while it's really important to track those POIs, it's also worth investing the time to check what information your client has floating around the public domain. You might be surprised at what you find. 
This brings up, Aaron, an interesting conversation about cyber hygiene in relation to your client's footprint. And like you said, it's not a one-and-done or fire-and-forget process. It's more like taking a daily shower. You have to continually monitor it and on occasion make adjustments or changes to better increase your security posture. And I really think it's wonderful that your team is incorporating this into your security umbrella because the cyber aspect has been historically kind of left out of the executive protection limelight. And while it's not as visible or sexy of a topic as tactical driving, protective firearms, and defensive tactics, it still has some very devastating implications if it's left unchecked. Yeah, and it's, you know, a lot of the times executive protection teams out there, they have these services, they're, they're very necessary. I mean, if you really want to protect somebody or something and, and really leverage everything that's reasonable to, to provide that service, not providing this piece is missing a huge huge part of the piece, a uh, huge part of the pie rather. But at the end of the day, most of the executive protection specialists, this isn't their background. And you might have somebody that has an interest in it. And they, you know, again, as a secondary task, tries to take care of it. But uh, what we found is, is that tends to be some, somewhat inefficient. Uh, just because it's not getting the attention it needs. And one of the things that that's kind of interesting, one of the other things we do here at ESOC is, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about our PSOC course and our covert operations course. Um, all of our analysts that work here in ESOC have to go through those two courses. Um, and the main reason is, one, these the, the folks that we hire in ESOC, they are they're analysts. That's their background. So they, while they are security analysts, uh, most of them do not have any experience in actual executive protection or covert ops. So by having them go through those courses, um, again, not trying to turn them into EP agents, but what we find is just giving them a little bit of context and a little bit of appreciation for the folks that are on the ground that need that information and how they're using that information on the ground. So again, going back to the the EP folks, that are probably very, very good at what they do. This is a, this is a different skill set altogether. So having us do that frees up the EP folks to take care of the tasks that they need to do. Because obviously, being on an EP team is uh, to say it's time consuming would be a, a gross understatement. But in, and just doing that job, just doing that job well, just doesn't leave time for addressing this other stuff. So it's. It's not really something you can sign, assign as a secondary task. If you want to do it correctly, it's got to be somebody's primary function. Oh, yeah. And to steal a quote from one of your colleagues, Brian Hartman, who might just be one of the fastest guns in the West, if you think it's expensive hiring a professional, then try hiring an amateur. Yeah. Only then will you truly know what a mess of a decision you've made. And then also, as I think about the intelligence aspect in particular, it's such an essential component that staff selection just really seems to be a major key to success. And then lastly, from the lens of that executive protection specialist, when you're protecting a client in the field and you're just ready to get back to the hotel at the end of the night to start shutting your body down, if you have to stay up for an extra two or three hours to complete more work and then maybe just get a few hours sleep before you're back at into the field, when it comes to overall safety, it all just seems to be an unnecessary risk at the end of the day. Yeah. And if you're only spending three or four hours of this on a day, you're, you're missing huge pieces of it. So that's the other part too. The, the, uh, the, the information that's out there, even as good as the software that we use uh, to, to cancel out a lot of that, that white noise, as good as it is, um, at the end of the day, it's still just an algorithm, right? So somebody saying, uh, 
PFC is the bomb, uh, the algorithm will read it the same as them saying, I'm going to bomb PFC. So, uh, <laughs> as good as, as good as the, the, the software is, it still requires a, a, a lot of, it still requires a human to look at it and actually analyze the intent or at least the perceived intent of, of the person making the statement. So, uh, it is, it's a time consuming job, but it's, and it's very necessary, but yeah, it's, it's just not something that can be done as a secondary task. Oh, that's so true, Aaron. And, and before we start to wrap up the conversation, I don't want to miss out on talking about last month's Ontic Summit, where you were presented a Thought Leader Award as part of the Protective Security Honor Ceremony. So first of all, congrats on your well-deserved recognition. And secondly, for those of us who were unable to attend this year, could you provide just like a short recap of events for our audience? Well, first I'll say uh, thank you for for mentioning the, the honor. It was it was uh, definitely interesting to get the award. PFC has been with Ontic uh, from the very beginning of Ontic. We've been huge believers in their product. Uh, we use their product here at our ESOC, and just to see how how Ontic has developed over the last few years, from where they started to where they are now, has just been an amazing transformation. Uh, and just honestly. You know, I was talking to Tom Kopecki and some of the other folks at Ontic and looking at where their product was, let's even say like a year and a half ago, they probably could have just stopped right then and not done anything else to it. And they would have still had something that nobody else is providing in this marketplace, at least not open source information that's not government, right? So they could have stopped right there and kind of hung their hat up on what they were doing. And they still would have had an amazing product that that in, in a service that nobody else is really providing like they are. But they decided they're going to press on, and they've been constantly developing and constantly adding new features, and just really turned their product into something that that I haven't seen any other thing that's that's like it. So uh, the fact that it's unique and has so many capabilities is really just a great thing. But um, so. Going back to the the summit, one of the things they do a really good job of, and I'm always impressed with, is uh, really the high level folks uh, that they get out of this industry to attend. So the last one that they had was an interesting, just historical view because this uh, this one was their second one, uh, but the first one they had, which was there in Austin, the big talk at the first Ontic summit. The thing everybody was talking about was, uh, have you heard of this this virus that's coming out of China? It's called COVID-19. And everybody, it was literally just beginning uh, at their first, their first summit a couple of years ago. And then right after that is when everything started going to lockdown and, you know, the next two to three years that we've all been experiencing. So, uh, so this was the second one. You know, a lot of changes had gone over since the first uh, the first summit, but I'm always just impressed with the high level people within the industry that they're able to attract to this thing, and a lot of the the folks that are giving the different talks and everything going on. It's just really amazing to me the the caliber of folks that they bring in for the summit, and just not just from you know EP world, but just from you know security world altogether. And there's a lot of different. A lot of different organizations out there to try and have these high level meetings. I'm not sure, you know, they all have different varying levels of success in bringing folks to them. But Ontic does a really good job of hosting this and 
just the, uh, like I said, the folks that you get to talk to while you're there. It's just an amazing experience. Well, Aaron, thank you for that recap and uh, and for sharing the information and your experience with Ontic. Uh, it sounds like it was a very informative event, and and hopefully next year we'll have the opportunity to link up there. Um, but I but I certainly hope it's not the next time that we see each other. For sure. <laughs> uh, with that said, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you again for sharing your insights with our audience. We are definitely going to have to have you back because there's just so much more to discuss on this topic and more. No, I certainly appreciate the opportunity and uh, looking forward to talking to you again soon. You got it, brother. And for those tuning in today, thank you for listening to episode number two of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Until next time, stay safe.